This is Erica in Edmonton. Shannon in Durham. And Chip in Durham. And you're listening to episode 38 of the audio guide to Babylon 5, Knives. Well, welcome back, everyone. Thank you once again for joining us on this journey through Babylon 5, one of our favorite shows of all time. It seems like we are now back to the uh, the A plot, B plot after taking a little break from that. Did, did that uh, seem like a natural, okay progression for you guys? Or did you feel like we were taking a step back in this one? Well, I must interrupt and complain about another step back. Uh-oh. So, Erica... In previous previous episodes and leads up to episodes, you have misnamed episodes. Yes, yes, I have. They're or, all or or the DVD has misnamed episodes. No, 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 no. The DVD is always right. I, I am I, 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 I hasten to blame human error before the sacred DVD. You misnamed. They're all the honor lives. Is they're all honor lives. You misnamed a spider in the web. S spider in the web, and you misnamed knives. It is I not did. knives. It is there's all there are all these fake centauri words about different fighting styles and weapons and things like that. Knives is not the name of this episode. It's actually a centauri word, kinevis. Oh, thank you for setting me straight, Chip. And what pray tell does kinevis mean in centauri? Kinevis is um, it's it's a, actually a very thematic episode title because it's one of the delicacies that wait, was wait, served. Wait, wait, let me guess. T- it's 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 the Centauri word for knives. Damn it! <laughs> Damn it, Erica! <laughs> oh, oh, you asked you asked actually a real question about the episode, didn't you? Uh, yeah, it was much less fun than the uh, the digression into the you know finer points of Centauri as a language. Well, the thing about this episode is uh, something about an A plot and a B plot, and uh, absolutely, um, we're back to that. And I'm, I think I'm okay with it. Uh, it was very Star Trekky. I was mm-hmm. amused I, after we watched this episode. I uh, popped in the uh, the trailer for for a couple of reasons. One, I was curious, and two, I just wanted to see what it's like when the where the film resolution and the um, video compositor resolution are exactly the same, um, so it so it doesn't look all inconsistent and stuff. The trailer for this episode that aired on the PTEN, not a single reference to the Centauri Kinevis uh, plot. It what? was all about Sheridan. It's all about Sheridan and being possessed and all this other stuff. And that is that is hysterical. So a that completely <laughs> supports your statement that we're back to the whole A plot, B plot stuff. And B, it's just a bit of a reminder that Warner, I don't think, had a whole lot of confidence in those silly people with that funny hair. <laughs> you know? They didn't get that it was this was a character piece much more than anything else. That, wow. That, that, that was for me. That, that this, is, this is an episode that totally updates us on what's going on in Centauri Prime and focuses so much on Londo and where he is now in his progression. Um, and I, th- that was what I remembered from the story. I remembered the, the duel. Uh, I did not remember anything about the B-plot of uh, Sheridan carrying this uh, totally random alien back to Sector 14. <laughs> Yeah, and it's interesting that you say B-plot for that, because that's exactly what I thought was the B-plot, too. So I am mm-hmm. just flabbergasted at the idea that the the trailer would only have the Sheridan plot. But I, I think, Chip, you're probably hitting the nail on the head there, that it's just, it 
you know, that in order to draw in people who weren't already watching the show, it seemed like the, you know, go with the the the, the good looking action hero as opposed to the mm-hmm. strange looking aliens. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. for for much of Babylon 5's existence, uh, the knock on the show was that's the that's the show with the people with the funny hair, isn't it? They took the Centauri and because of the Centauri, the show they took it as seriously as you know most characters took Londo seriously in the first season, which was not at all. Yep. Well, speaking of uh, of the Centauri and, and all of that, um, if this happens to be the very first episode of Babylon Five that you are jumping in and watching with us, first of all, welcome. And uh, second of all, this is this is sort of the little bit of very little bit of backstory you might need to know coming into this episode. Babylon 5 is a huge space station in neutral territory. It's basically a city in space, and like a city, it has all kinds of neighborhoods. Of the many races that live on B5, one is the Markab, about which we don't know a whole lot, and another is the Centauri, a race whose empire has somewhat fallen into decadence, but who, with Centauri ambassador Londo Molari's help, is poised to try to retake their place in the galaxy as a conquering force. And that's really all you need to know in order to come into this episode, Knives, in which Londo's old friend and dueling partner Urza visits him on the station, asking for his help standing up to a resolution that's destined to ruin him and his family. Londo discovers it's his own associates who set the resolution against Urza in motion. In the end, Londo is forced to duel and kill his old friend in order to save Urza's family. Meanwhile, Captain Sheridan checks out a spooky part of the station and ends up with an alien hitchhiker in his brain. Luckily, he figures out how to get it home. The end. And that's Knives. So, Kinnivis! Um, Kinnivis! Yeah, <clears throat> so that's that's Kinnivis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are we going to do this yeah, with every episode that no, has Centauri no, in it? No, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'll be good. <laughs> yeah, Eric, you asked at the beginning whether you know it was okay to go back to A-plot, B-plot, that sort of thing after several episodes that broke that mold. Um, I think mu- much of that can be laid at the feet of uh, the fact that this is written by Larry DeTillo again. And mm-hmm. DeTillo, you know, while he does some fun things, he does some interesting things in his episodes, he also tends to be more formulaic. I think than than JMS, um, so this co- sort of falls right into his pattern of we've got um, all the really strange invented words shoved in. I think it mm-hmm. maybe works slightly better since most of them come from the Centauri side this time, which yes. as an alien race they would have different words for things. And Didn't like got, it, but go ahead. <laughs> well. I, I didn't say I liked it. I said it, I thought it worked better than than it has before. I liked uh, it. for me it it, it felt like you know you've got these two halves uh two stories neither the two shall meet and plus they both both of them kind of needed some more time to really develop well enough they were both kind of choppy and jumpy um and they both needed like maybe five more minutes to uh link all of the pieces together in my opinion yeah i was i'm not gonna say that i found it exactly jarring to jump back to this but it wasn't as smooth of a transition as I kind of would have liked from episode to episode this did very much feel more like a 
it felt like a first season episode in terms of structure. Uh, it certainly didn't feel like a first season episode in terms of, of style and what was going on with the characters. So I, I, I was fine with, with that part of it. But yeah, I definitely felt like there was there was no intermingling of the two plots at all. And I do appreciate when they can do that, even in some small way. And this really didn't didn't carry over. And at the same time, yeah, we definitely had that that Larry Dottillo feel. And, and I will I will stand up for the Centauri words. I maybe it's just because I loved hearing I love hearing Peter Jurisic talk in that Centauri accent and say all of those exotic words. I that just gets me going, you guys. I love it. So I had no problem with this one, even though I'm usually the first one to complain about the uh, the the silly jargon put in by Larry Dottillo. I think he just needs to write for alien species all the time. That's mm-hmm. that's my answer. <laughs> Chip, you didn't like that yeah. though, huh? No, well, I mean, I'll grant you that uh, Peter Jurisic makes that sort of uh, dialogue sink, uh, but Urza... Not so much. <laughs> mm, he struggled a little bit with the accent, no. but I appreciated the effort he was putting in. Mostly. You know, but 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 they don't need to do that. Uh, it, it's it's been established that you have people with different kinds of accents on on all the other worlds, just as you do on Earth. Um, yes, but and I but that's one of the reasons I liked it so much because their houses have been connected for so long. They grew up together as kids. They really should have the same accent. I'm almost picking up on the idea that it. It may be sort of a, a class type thing to some extent because Lord Rifa also has a little bit of that accent. Whereas Veer, who is clearly from a house that is not as important, doesn't not only does he not have that same accent, but he doesn't even really understand the intricacies of this dueling culture. And I kind of love that because it made Centauri Prime feel like a more developed world, a bigger world, because it's big enough that there are different parts of the society. Like I, I can think of a gazillion things that I don't understand on earth so it was nice to see that you know not every single centauri understands everything about all of centauri hashtag not all centauri (laughs) oh god (laughs) yeah i can see that i think i think for me the the problem was there were a few lines of dialogue where where those where those insert words were just coming so frequently that it kind of broke up the broke up the dialogue a bit or broke up the scene for me a little bit. Um, you know, concept, yeah, I understand. Um, I totally agree that this really um, broadens the Centauri culture, both um, its sweeping overarching culture and also the politics that are going on back home. We mm-hmm. finally get to see just um, number one, that there are people who know that um, the prime minister was murdered and um uh, were supportive would have been supportive and of, Londo uh, didn't know Emperor. it right and Londo That's didn't right. know um, and now he finds out that just how vicious the infighting among the political set has gotten back home um, as like Blondo says he's he better start paying attention to what he started um, so a lot of that backstory worked very well for me Londo talking about his agents on Centauri Prime that uh, yeah. that took me aback a little bit because you know it's it, it's only it's only been a few episodes relatively speaking since um, the coming of shadows, um, but not only is his star on the rise, but he's actually doing something with it and putting people in place to look after his interests at home. Um, yeah. That's I, I did I did find that very interesting. Yeah. But, but I don't think they're very good agents. If if you know his, this is the first time that that Londo is being told there are people who don't like the war. There are people who know the Centauri start, shot first. 
um, and they don't like that. There are people who, you know, who know that the prime minister was murdered, uh, all of these things. And it takes Londo's best friend coming to visit him for him to hear these things. Yeah. Well, he's 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 not used to being a player. That's true. It's all very new to him. Um, you know, as as we're as we're talking about the Centauri side of things, I've got to confess that the beginning of this episode almost destroyed the whole Centauri thing for me. In this episode, um, Are you talking about the opera, I'm talking about the whole pre-credits thing, opera and staging and dialogue and all this other stuff. That was a scene that actually made me cringe. It's not often that I have this sort of embarrassed reaction to Babylon 5 like uh, Shannon did during the Ivanova dance uh, during our most recent rewatch of the of Acts of Sacrifice. But it seemed so artificial, so forced, so painful. I was imagining the the sort of backstage rehearsal and all this other stuff. And, of course, Christopher Franck... Uh, pipes in some um mm-hmm. some music to go along with them as they're singing together and it's just so awkward so forced and then there is absolutely no reason for urza to show up as a hooded figure and threaten to kill londo and all this stuff just it's cheesy it is cheese it, it's not cheese tastic there is no tastic to this cheese <laughs> i I read some tastic into that cheese. I'm not going to lie. I I actually remembered feeling that cringe feeling the first time that I saw this and maybe the first several times. But for some reason, this time, it didn't bother me as much. I still completely understand why you would feel that way um, because there were hints of it. But I I actually I liked seeing Londo and Veer communicating in that way because I've, I've gotten the impression that they that they have a friendship that's kind of like this in in the background when they're off screen, but we haven't really seen too much of it. It's just sort of whenever they're interacting on screen lately, it seems like they're, it's not so much the, you know, master servant relationship as it could be. And this I think is an example of how, how they're acting other times. And I liked seeing that. And I just, you know, music is, is a wonderful thing to bring people together. And yeah, it was a little bit, okay, it was a lot cheesy. I would give you that. <laughs> but I, I enjoyed it. It just seemed like two friends, you know, John about something and, and enjoying themselves. And and yeah, it was it was kind of dumb to have Urza appear under a, a hood. But I to me, that actually worked well with the way that their friendship um, kind of went throughout the rest of the show. Because they had... They had this long-standing relationship. They were dueling partners. You know, friends who have been friends for many decades have all kinds of weird, stupid little inside jokes that don't necessarily make a lot of sense on the outside. And yes, they could have added a couple of lines to to make that make more sense. It does strike me as something that was just put in the script because they wanted to have that little stingy cliffhanger thing before the opening credits. Like, oh my God, Londo's going to die. Oh no. Um and uh, yes, they could have smoothed that out, I think, a little bit better after the fact. But I still enjoyed it, and I still felt like it it fit with their, their friendship. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the idea of it. Like you said, uh, Londo and Veer talking about some totally random thing that they both have strong opinions about. Um, I was just rather thankful that they both have good enough singing voices to, mm-hmm. um, to, to, to give their examples uh, without, um, <laughs> without sounding horrible. 
I understand the purpose of Urza popping up. Yes, it establishes his character very quickly. I think for me, it comes down, and this kind of goes for the whole episode for me, the staging. This is the only episode of Babylon 5 directed by a fellow called Stephen Posey. And he's done um, Deep Space Nine. He's done other... um, I don't remember off the top of my head, um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, maybe. He's done other TV work, but this entire episode felt, like you said, season one stagey to mm-hmm. me, more so than it has been lately. Um, you know, this is a director who has not had some episodes of B5 under his belt to get a feel for it. Um, he comes from experience where, you know, things are a little bit more fixed. I That's not exactly the right word. Um, cuts. Not just like the cliffhanger before the credits, but from where the commercial breaks would have been. For the first time in ages, I noticed how clumsy they were. And that's not something I usually pick up on. That's what um, made things more difficult for me, I think, in parts of this episode. Yeah, there was only one moment where I thought, hey, this is this is a well-directed bit. And that was that brief little sh- perspective shot from inside Londo's vault as he's pulling out the Brevari. Um, and I, I kind of I kind of liked that, but other than that, I thought that this was generally speaking a clumsily executed episode, both in the writing and the direction. Not awful, just a little painful and a little on the nose in spots. Yeah, I'll give you the unknowns. I really, it felt sort of pedestrian to me. It seemed like there were a couple of moments where I felt like I was watching the episode be directed. You know, like where sometimes you can see somebody acting. I felt like I could see the director directing. Even, you know, the, the point of view shot of the Bravari, it, there was no good reason for that to be in there. Shots like that work when there's some sort of motivation for them. Yeah, it was cool looking, but I don't know that cool looking was quite good enough for setting up a camera at that spot and having like it, it seemed like there's a lot of work that went into that shot that didn't really pay off in any way and the other thing that i i thought was sort of just you know workmanlike directing was the scene when Lando and Ursa are at the banquet table and kind of having it out and, and arguing towards the end just before the duel is uh, is set up. And you've got Lando framed much higher in the frame. His forehead is closer to the top, whereas Urza's chin is, you know, skimming the bottom of the frame. And it's that's that's kind of one of those directing class 101 things where, where they tell you, you know, oh, if you've got a character that's got more power, you can subtly frame them a little bit higher <laughs> as opposed to the character who has less power. And yes, that's absolutely true and that's what happened it just it really felt very very simplistic to me and yeah. it didn't seem like it was artistic even the banquet table itself it looked like you know staging for a high school play yep mm-hmm. yep so yeah. yeah so yeah so generally speaking i like this half of the plot i like what it reveals about londo peter jurassic gives a great performance i think it advances Londo's story where he is realizing more of the personal consequences of his actions. He's not going to change directions. He feels like uh, what's done is done and he's just got to see it through. But I would have liked a stronger performance by the actor playing Urza. I would have liked more artful dialogue. I would have liked less opera. And... um, (laughs) And I, I, I would have even setting the theme of that yeah, story. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I would have, I would have liked a better fight scene. I think that uh, yeah. l- again, Londo and Peter Jurassic are surprisingly believable. 
Mm-hmm. And, and and this um, much more so than you know as as he would have been presented in the first season. You know, Londo's line. You know, I, my life is on the line this time. You know, you'll you'll find me mm-hmm. a better fighter this time because I've got something to fight for. You know, and that gives that gives both uh, Jurisic and Londo credibility in the fight scene. I mean, he, he's a, he's a washed up old Republican, but you know he's he's giving it a good go. But it's clumsily staged, and it's these swords are not. <laughs> They're shiny. They are very, very they are shiny. very shiny. Um, but they don't look plausible in any kind of way. No, I, I honestly, I thought the fight scene was it was not as bad as I expected it to be, uh, but it was it was not as good as I, I think it could have been, which is a shame. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking I, of, oh, go ahead, Shannon. Now I was just saying, um, talking about you know, Chip mentioned that you know there was strong characterization for Londo in this half of the story. Um, there's also strong characterization for Veer. We get a lot more of Veer. Not only um, hints that uh, Londo is definitely has been you know res- gained. Veer has gained Londo's respect more and more as the season, as the show has progressed. Um, you know, now he's uh, Londo's attache rather than just his aide uh, or his mm-hmm. staff or, you know, the, the terms he's thrown around before. We get um, some of Veer's philosophical side that he questions Londo. You know, we're not learning from our history or, you know, we're not, you know, thinking things through. And again, Veer, once again, is what appears to be Londo's Cassandra, personal Cassandra. He's telling him, you know, look, <laughs> you know, you need to think about this, What's um, th- what the consequences are for you. And, you know, Londo's listening, but basically saying, I can't do anything. I, I can't do anything. I've already made my choices. And Veer keeps you- telling him, no, you can make different <laughs> choices. Um, and I really like, uh, I loved one thing I noticed in the banquet seat this time, how Veer was just kind of like, you know, the, the little duckling following behind Mama Duck uh, almost <laughs> all the way through. That he was clearly out of his depth. He'd clearly never been in such a situation before. And he was very careful to try and stick close to Londo and um, and not embarrass him. Yeah, I I'd, I'd liked Veer in this episode. I mean, at the end where he's he's kind of this sunny, cheerful little guy in some ways. Because at the end he's saying, oh, look, you know, maybe something good did come out of this. Because now you're recognizing you can make some different choices in the future. And and you're right, Londo is, he's he's listening. His ears are open, but his mind is closed at that point. Because mm-hmm. he, says, he says, no, the blood is already on my hands. I must follow the path to its end. Which is really just pretty depressing, I think. And mm-hmm. after that... Stephen just <laughs> turned and said to me, Londo is a man of regret ever since talking to the space mob. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> you know what, honey, you nailed it because he just it seems like ever since then, each each decision that he has made has has brought him less and less happiness um, and more and more power. And this is just another another one of those. He's had to kill one of his oldest and best friends, um, but he still stays in this, you know, cushy, powerful position, which is. Yeah. I don't know. And realizing just how little he knows about it. Like you said, you know, he Mm -hmm. finds out that, you know, Rifa, he tells Rifa to stop this resolution, discovers Rifa's the one behind it. And Rifa is not going to change anything. And Londo's realizing, I think, you know, just just how treacherous his current friends are. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the end of this episode, I'm wondering why Londo says that he can't make the make it make any changes. Veer is very reasonable when he says you can you can you can change your mind and Londo says no I can't. Um, and then I just remembered at the beginning of this episode, Londo is very adamant in talking with Urza about 
what the Centauri Republic needs to become again. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is I think that that is still his motivation that he believes that he, he still wants, as he told Morton, he wants the Centauri Republic to reclaim its rightful place and he wants to be important again. And I think that that is ultimately why he's going to keep doing what he's doing. There might also be a little bit of the um, almost an, an addiction sort of a thing in here, because, you know, Londo has always been a man of, of pursuits of that sort. He's lots of alcohol, lots of gambling. And I think perhaps the pursuit of power is is also its own sort of sort of heady drug. And now that he's on this path and and this path is also a path for all of Centauri. So, you know, they kind of go hand in hand. He he feels like he is heading in this direction. And, you know, you tell an alcoholic uh, that they can stop drinking. And depending on where they are in their possible recovery, um, you might very well get the answer, no, no, I can't. It's simply not possible. So this this really echoed things that I've heard in my own life from from people in that situation. So I think it could be a lot of those things. Do you guys have anything else to cover on the uh, the Londo A plot side uh, before we move over to the jaunty little B plot? Uh, just a couple of things. We uh, get our first mention of Adira uh, after ages and ages, and mm-hmm. the characterization is kind of jarring. And I don't know how much of this, you know, suggests what's happened to Londo since Adira left, but, you know, basically saying that it ended badly and, you know, referring to dead passions, um, you know, that sounds like a total 180 from the Londo of Born to the Purple um, and is, you know, helps show the evidence of what, what his character arc is like. And also the fact that it took a character from Londo's childhood in Urzo to contrast to help to help the audience see just how much Londo has changed because Urza there's times when Londo is talking and the look on Urza's face is almost disgust at what have you become I don't know you anymore um so I think there's little bits here and there that help support the character arc that uh that's been created for uh for Londo yeah I think the Adira thing was interesting it that struck me as you know after a relationship ends, even if it was a wonderful star-crossed type relationship that you wished would would bring itself back someday, like like it seemed like Londo felt at the end of Born to the Purple, um, I, I know in, in my life I have later on been talking to my girlfriends or whatever and, and been very dismissive and sort of somewhat bitter about, you know, the possibilities of relationships past. So I felt like this really displayed um, a little bit of uh, Londo has lost all hope when it comes to that sort of thing. So I think you're right. It does sort of show where he's the arc that he has made since that time. It seemed like they were softening him up and making him a bit more of a romantic at around that that time and the few episodes after that. And then by this time, he's just nah. he's on the power train. That's that's what he cares about now. Those grapes were sour anyway. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Anything else on the Londo side? If not, then um, then yeah, let's let's talk about Sheridan and the Alien. It sounds like a children's book. Sheridan <laughs> and the Alien. It it was it was a very straightforward, sort of simple simple plot. Uh, was that okay for you guys? Did you appreciate the fact that this was less you know convoluted and and political on this side, or was it too simple? Was it uh, jarring to have both of them in the same episode? Sheridan. Sheridan the Urban Explorer. No, 
No, I'm not buying it. Sheridan walking by himself into the yeah. gray sector. No, no, I'm not buying it, especially after Garibaldi tells him not to. And, and Sheridan acts like, you know, of course I'm not. Doing. It's uh, again, it's Dottillo sort of. Dottillo does this, though. It's yeah. Dottillo, I don't. This is Dottillo's little niche to try and make Sheridan a more interesting character because it was Dottillo back in A Spider in the Web that decided, hey, Sheridan is a conspiracy theorist nut. And that will explain why he's so interested in um, the story that Abel Horn reveals about um, the Psychor taking dead people or almost dead people and um, turning them into into their own little automatons. Um, and now Dottillo again decides, hey, I'm going to make Sheridan the type of person who would go investigate this haunted house. Um, it, it doesn't quite fit anywhere else in Sheridan's character except back to the other Dottillo episode. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's rather annoying. It, it is hugely annoying. And it's not, and it doesn't do anything to, it, it feels like it's simultaneously a half-baked attempt to make Sheridan quirky and interesting. But more than that, it is clearly just a device to get him into the plot. Garibaldi just happens to mention the triangle sect, the triangle area. Mm-hmm. Sheridan just happens to be interested in going, wanting to go off and explore by himself. And I'm sorry, we had several times in season one uh, the moments of Sinclair deciding that he needs to do something, he needs to explore something, he needs to he needs to go on the line, uh, literally and figuratively, all by himself. And Garibaldi gives him hell for it. Sheridan's got less PTSD than this. Sheridan's got no excuse for this. He is he is Earth Force military governor. He is the captain of the station. It's stupid for him to do this. He doesn't even have Kosh with him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he's he's they've built him up to be a smarter character than this. So it really uh, Stephen had a problem with that too. He was just like he no no no. He's like he he might get ambushed and killed. He's the captain. Like that's not that is not a thing you do by a so. random thug that has mm-hmm. absolutely nothing to do with the you know. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So okay. So exactly. beyond the setup of it, which was clearly faulty, um, how did you feel about the the plot of the the alien hitchhiker and and getting home and the way it communicated with Sheridan visually? Clunky. That that's the only word I can think of. Like I said earlier, this plot really needed like ten or fifteen more minutes so that Sheridan's burst of understanding would not be so intuitive that it leaves the rest of the characters and the audience behind because there's just no that those you know you've got the three bits you've got you know Sheridan being attacked by the alien creature that you know he ran into on a planet ages ago you've got the flash of um his wife's ship the revisiting her death and then you've got this vision of the parents and you know like those three little bits of information are suddenly, you know, that and the seeing the the whiteout, the washout of um, Babylon 4's disappearance. And all of a sudden, Sheridan's got it. it. It did not feel like enough. It did not feel like enough for him to make a realization. It did not feel enough. It definitely didn't feel enough for the audience to know what was going on. Yeah. I, I I completely agree. I I really like the idea of this little subplot, uh, the idea that there's a, a 
an alien so alien that mm-hmm. Dr. Franklin can't even detect it. And the way that it has to communicate is through pictures and, and feelings and emotions. And, and I quite like the idea, but it, it is just done inelegantly is how I would put it. It is just, it's a story that, that could be beautiful and it is just mm-hmm. not elegant in, in any way in any way. And it does, you know, it makes Sheridan look kind of cool um, and smart for figuring it out. But you're right, he's way too far ahead of the audience. Um, so it doesn't, you know, it, it, it seems a little bit forced. Yeah, it does. I mean, if we took these two plots, and if we re-edit the episode so that you get 30 minutes of plus commercials of the Londo story, sequential, and then 30 minutes of the Sheridan story, sequential, you know, if this was a part one, part two, or just, you know, then I think the, the thinness of these plots becomes really evident. And the, the, the only thing that saves this episode in some ways is the thing that annoys us so much about it is that they are so unrelated. So if, at, at, mm-hmm. if the seams are starting to show too much in one story, that's okay. We'll go to the other story. And that brings up a really pedantic point, which is the kind of thing that I don't usually like to mention in public. But one of the things that bothers me sometimes is when you're cross-cutting between plot one and plot two. It bugs me when you're on plot one. Okay, so you're, you're looking at Londo, they're at a banquet, and then you're looking at the captain and he's leaving to go off on this, you know, mission to find Sector 14. And then you cut back to the banquet. It's probably been, you know, it's a banquet. It's been, you know, half hour or something like that. And you cut back to the captain and suddenly he's in Sector 14. If I'm remembering correctly, it took like at least a, cu- a few hours yeah, to get there. So, so every time that they cut back and forth, it did not match up in time. And yes, that's a, a silly thing to come complain about but i think there wasn't enough else going on in this episode that was capturing my attention that that kind of thing stood out to me if we'd had at least one reference to socks and zipping and fastening (laughs) that's right yeah Yeah. although i'm kind of glad we didn't have that (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think the the only thing that that saves that b plot um for me is we do get some more good character interaction and character support um, outside of the Sheridan Likes Haunted Houses thing. Um, Because we see, you know, Sheridan is, you know, on the one hand, this starts happening to him. um, And at first, you know, like the first time he he doesn't say anything. And then the second time he's like, okay, yeah, I got to go see the doctor. Um, He's smart enough to not keep toughing it out. Um, We get, you know, Stephen... In his element, uh, both when he's checking Sheridan out and checking the, the dead Marcab out, um, launching into his scientific explanations for anything. And then, of course, how excited he is at the end when he realizes there's a whole new alien and we didn't know. Um, that's wonderful. Um, I like some of the banter between uh, Garibaldi, Sheridan, and um, Stephen in Med Lab. Some of that worked very well for me, and I found funny, and I was laughing a few times. So th- it's not a total wash as far as the B-plot. It just, the, like you said, the structure, the pacing, so much of that was off that, um, that, uh, that it keeps it from being like a really solid episode. 
I also like the fact that that Babylon 5 seems consistently committed to showing that the tapestry of the galaxy is is vast and big and there are lots of people mm-hmm. out there. So we have the the Markab race is one that's that's been in the background and has been referred to a couple of times. I believe it was some sort of juice uh, that the Markab mm-hmm. from the Markab home planet that Dr. Franklin serves to his father, who we actually get a mention of in this episode. Yes, so he's not completely fun. not completely forgotten. Um so yeah, so really all we know about the Markab is they they make some really good juice that's kind of like orange juice and apparently they do psychotropic drugs while practicing their religion um, but I just I like the idea that they put in um, it, it wasn't a, a Narn or, or one of the major races that was that mm-hmm. was this corpse they had something else there and then gave us just a little bit of uh, seasoning about that characters or that uh, that race's background it's it's a big world out there yeah Speaking of Stephen's father, I do like that we get all these callbacks uh, to previous episodes, most of which were actually written by Larry Dottilio, <laughs> but Ooh, convenient, I pick up conveniently on that. enough. Yeah, Adira from Born to the Purple, that's Dottilio. Uh, Stephen's mm-hmm. father, Gropos, that's Dottilio. Babylon 4, that's JMS, actually. But um, <laughs> That was kind of integral to the, uh, yeah, to the story. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it does but it was actually... A character bit. To, to find out that, yes, Garibaldi made a copy of his files before he let mm-hmm. Earth confiscate them. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I, I do like that part of this episode that uh, there are all these callbacks, but they don't really come out of left field. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the conversation about Adira is fairly natural. The reference to uh, it's like your father, um, it's, it's the sort of thing that Sheridan would say. And uh, that uh, that uh, Stephen uh, takes pleasure in that uh, shows a little bit of character development. Uh, the fact that Londo and Veer are singing bad opera at each other follows from <laughs> Londo standing up for Veer when Centauri Prime wanted to uh, take him out of the position. So yeah. this is a clumsy episode, full stop. It's one of the clumsiest that we've had, uh, but there's... There's enough in the nuts and bolts of it that I'm I, I'm glad that we got it. Rather, I I wouldn't want to shove it into out of an airlock. Yeah, I feel like it's it's solid. I I enjoyed it. I would say that I like it. Um, I also noticed one other thing, just dipping back into the language and Larry Detello's mm-hmm. use of it. Is this where we sort of switch over from saying? Uh, the Narns to the Narn, or is that just a Centauri thing? Because I feel like all the way through season one and the beginning of season two, every time the Narns were referred to, it was Narns with an S. And here, suddenly, the S is gone. So You know, I totally didn't notice. Yeah, I I don't think I caught that either. I I wouldn't be surprised if it might be it would be cool if it was something that like just the Centauri say, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's like they they they're classifying this other as this just one broad expanse of of alien mass that needs to be gotten rid of. That that would be if that's mm-hmm. the case, that would be a cool touch. I don't know that it's deliberate and I don't know that that's what they mm-hmm. were doing. Maybe they tend to say like the Narn referring to the civilization and Narns referring to individuals or, mm-hmm. you know, Could I'm be. not sure. I'm going to pay attention to this as things go along. So check back with me on, uh, you know, <laughs> Narn versus Narns. We'll have a segment on every podcast. No, we are not going to. Well, well I mean, we've, we're have we past the Sinclair check-in thing, so That's we can true. have a Narn plural, plural check-in. <laughs> oh, that is fantastic. Well, do you guys have anything else that you want to cover before we zip into spoiler space? Well, this may count as a minor spoiler, but I think it's worth I, I think it's worth announcing. I think we should pause and commemorate a moment here. 
Knives is the last episode, with one exception uh, a, a few years from now. This is the last episode of Babylon 5 that will be written by someone other than showrunner J. Michael Straczynski. This is the last episode to be written by Larry Dottilio. It's the last episode to be written by anybody except for this aforementioned special guest a little while. From here on out, dear listener, if you've never watched Babylon 5 before, this is very much J. Michael Straczynski's story. I think it's worth paying attention to if you're new to this uh, because uh, it's all in one man's hands now. Literally, it's not just a it's he's he's not just a showrunner. He's from here on out. Babylon five is a singularly written television story. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, that is that is a great place to uh, to call a stop to put a little teaser out there for things to come. Um, speaking of things to come, uh, I will give you your homework. And that is we are now um, if you're watching on the DVDs, you can now take out this DVD, jump back to the previous DVD because we watched these two episodes out of order. We will now be catching up with In the Shadow of Zaha Doom. So um, watch that for next time. And in the meantime, please come and visit us online at b5audioguide.com, we've got both spoilery and spoiler-free threads, so you can come and talk about the show depending on how much you know about it and what's to come. Uh, some really interesting discussions going on there, so I, I highly recommend you check it out. Uh, even if you're just going to lurk and read it, we've gotten some some notifications from people that they love reading the threads, even if they're not commenting. That's fantastic. We love having you guys there, too. Uh, if you are uh, more the brevity is your thing, you can do Twitter and Tumblr at B5 Audio Guide. And until next time, uh, if you haven't seen the show before, please jump off because we are heading through the jump gate into spoiler space. All right. Spoiler space. I actually, uh, I am usually the person who doesn't catch things uh, in spoiler space. So I usually just say, Shannon, Chip, tell me what happened. <laughs> but I noticed some things this time. Um, Hooray! The, the, I'm, the first thing is, is just a very quick and silly one. And that is just, we start out this episode talking about the, you know, Babylon 5 triangle and it's in gray sector. And I immediately thought, oh yeah, gray 17 yeah. is missing. Gray sector stays weird even after this alien leaves. Yep. Yeah, that, that jumped out at me too. Um, although I misremembered in my notes and wrote gray 13. <laughs> Bureau 13, um, gray 17, you know, it all, it all yeah. blurs yeah. together. Sector 14, where Babylon 4 is. There's a lot of numbers, and Babylon 4 itself will be coming back right. again. Yes. If you hear the word teen in Babylon 5, run away in the other direction. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, that is true. Very true. But yeah, there's, there, there's a ton of stuff that connects forward um and that's one of the reasons that you know again all hail the master list we have the reference to anna sheridan and the icarus being destroyed here and mm -hmm. that ties in perfectly that's you know just a little bitty reminder that maybe jms's hand in detillo's script you know poking that one thing in to set us up for in the shadow of zahadum ah yes yeah yeah, so so that. so watching them out of order as it was originally released is kind of kind of stinks. Kind of stinks. Uh, this is a much better order here for these two episodes. Well, I feel like it it works okay doing them the aired way simply because you know Anna is is going to be fresh in his mind 
when it comes to the next episode. So it would kind of make sense that that would be the thing that the that he would see. But his reaction to it when he's talking to Dr. Franklin about it afterwards, I agree, does not match up with, with how mm-hmm. he should be feeling after In the Shadow of Zahadum. Yeah, when he was about to space uh, Morden. Yeah, that was uh, he. So. He seemed much more intense there uh, compared to how he is with uh, with mm-hmm. Dr. Franklin, just talking about it, saying it happened a long time ago, and I wasn't there. He seems much more at peace with it than yeah. he does later. It's also nice to get this reminder of uh, Sector fourteen in Babylon four. We're not going to see before again for another uh, for another year, pretty much. But having that little reminder dropped in is nice. Mm-hmm. I was actually impressed uh, at how well Stephen picked up on all of these these little things because I he quite often he just does not remember what what we watched two or three episodes ago like it'll just be completely <laughs> gone because because that's just how it works. But as soon as uh, Londo mentioned Adira, he was like, "Oh, that was from season one. That was the the stripper." Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Yep, good job, dear." And uh, and he remembered Babylon Four. He he even almost remembered the name of the episode where it appeared. So so it seems like the things that are important to continuity he is latching onto and getting and i'm very pleased by that and it's important yeah. for for this show to uh, reinforce those because mm-hmm. this stuff otherwise just comes out of the blue and you have to be an obsessive detail oriented fanboy like me to 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 keep all of that stuff in your head you know? i was going to say who would be like that jeez <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm the yeah. guy, i'm the kind of guy who remembers my favorite comic book letterer in the 80s um we've, we've but, talked about this before it's yes, a Todd yes. Klein for all three of us <laughs> <laughs> but yep. for normal for for normal humans um you know you need these callbacks every once in a while and like we said in the pre-spoiler section as clunky as this episode is the callbacks are pretty well integrated into the story yeah, because we've got Adira, the mention of Dira. We've got uh, a quick check-in with Lord Rifa, and those two things are going to come clashing together. Uh, oh yeah. Soon, um, when we mm-hmm. find out that um, that uh, Adira, you know, d- gets uh, dies by poison, and Londo assumes it's Rifa, and then Londo eventually kills Rifa, and you know, we will. I'm trying to remember if Londo ever learns that it was Morden. That oh that yes. Okay, oh. thank you. Yep. He does. Yeah. But I mean, it, I also was thinking about Lord Rifa and his eventual demise. Am I the only one who is comforting myself with thoughts <laughs> of that of that scene when he was being so awful here? Oh, no, no, no. Um, he's, he's, he's a very good villain. You know, he makes it he absolutely easy to hate. Yeah. Him. Uh, speaking of and speaking of which, uh, we get the first name check for the new emperor, Cartagia, and the description mm. of him. Yes. Um, Yes, it yes. perfectly actually lines up with uh, who we are going to see, and I and I wasn't expecting that. Um, I was, I sort of remembered Mad Cartagia being sort of com- coming out of out of the blue, uh, but no, Urza's got no respect for Cartagia, and uh, and it it just yeah, it he just doesn't fits. realize the danger yet. He, he yeah, realizes, he sees him as infantile and and out of control, but he doesn't see the danger yet. Yeah, so um, it, so it's it's a, it's another good bit of setup there. I don't know how I don't know how fleshed out uh, Cartagia was in JMS's mind uh, until we get later into season three, but uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah, we just the other thing that I kept thinking forward to and back to at the same time because 
Babylon 5 is tricky like that, uh, was Londo following his path to its end. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking, you know, we've already seen that end in his his dream, his vision with him and, and Jakar strangling each other. And and I just, every time he makes any kind of mention throughout Babylon 5 to, to the road that he's on or the path mm-hmm. that he's taking, I just, I just shake my head back and forth. You yeah, could uh-huh. have chosen differently. You've had so many opportunities. Yeah, and that was mm-hmm. something that struck me Um listening to Veer yet again try to change his mind. Uh, at some point, I think Veer gets through enough because we're going to have a point where Londo invites the emperor's widow uh, to Babylon 5 for the exclusive purpose of using her prophetic talents to try and figure out, is there a way out of this? So, you know, there, there's going to get to a, we're going to get to a point where, yeah, he squandered, what was it, two chances and he's got three more. And of course, it turns out he makes the wrong choice every time, practically. But yeah, that this this episode and his current determination to you know I have I have already um, I can't go back essentially, and I don't mm-hmm. see a way forward other than the the single path. I'm not seeing any place to veer off. To um, veer off. Ha ha ha. Sorry. No, I love it. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> oh. So it it did work uh, very well for me. Well, the only other um, the only other thing that I mentioned forward continuity wise is we see a little glimpse of of Captain Sheridan's parents reaching out to him, and I was just like, "Hey, where is Rance Howard? This yeah. is not right." right. <laughs> yeah. But you, you you can't fault a TV show for that. I mean, if they didn't know yet that his father was going to come back, or I don't know, maybe he had plans for that one random extra with no speaking part to come back and it just didn't work out. These are the kinds of things that that I I tend to forgive a show that's as long running as this. I mean, Anna Sheridan gets recast as well. We've seen her on video before and boy, she's not the same. No, she's not. I mean, if Warner Brothers loved Babylon 5 the way George Lucas loved uh, Star Wars, this would have been re-edited 500 times and digital compositing of the right actors would be dropped in and all this other stuff. And extra shadows. Yeah. Oh, I I meant to mention this. uh, I meant to mention this during the pre-spoiler section, but that god-awful space alien winged dude animation, even for the time, that was <laughs> pitiful. It was pretty bad. Sorry. Yep. Yeah. Sorry, but although, yeah. Yeah, although it was good to see that, you know, Garibaldi, you know, brings in one of his one of his guards who is, you know, yet another woman and a woman of color. So, mm-hmm. you know, get more, you know, showing that background diversity that Babylon 5 is really good at. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of anything else. Yeah, any other continuity-based things, because that's... Uh, that's everything in my little pouch. That's all I got. Yeah, I'm trying now. The grappling thing uh, with the Star Furies, we've seen, sh- we've, we saw Sinclair manage to pull that off, right? In season one. Yeah, yeah. Managing um, to physically grapple. And then we see it again here with Garibaldi catching Sheridan Star Fury before he goes through the portal. Yeah, and I do like that, you know, looking forward, going through the distortion fields and all that other stuff, you know, it's bad news. Sinclair keeps Garibaldi out of it uh, in Babylon Squared. In retrospect, it was a damn near thing that uh, Garibaldi caught Sheridan in time before he Mm -hmm. threw there because that would have ended the series right there. That's true. They'd both been gone. uh, Yeah, and Garibaldi, yeah, going through that again. Garibaldi would have died and Sheridan probably would have wound up, you know... Some other dimension. Yeah. Mm Who knows? On the home planet of the crazy brain hitchhiker... (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
And of course, you know, we've got um, some strong, we, we just keep, the, the, there's this little pounding drum of Marcab, 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 because mm-hmm. we have this time, you know, not just a mention of the Marcab culture or, or, or a drop, there's an actual Marcab. Um, he apparently did not get along with this alien so badly that he bashed his own head in to kill himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get the mention of, from Stephen, the Marcab doctor, who is almost certainly going to be the doctor he works with in Confessions and Lamentations. Yep. Uh-huh. Of course. Yeah, that was that was one thing where it, it's it's sometimes tricky doing this podcast to know when I'm writing up my notes for things to talk about. You know, it, if mm-hmm. it's something that's subtle that's going to come up later, do we ignore it so that it you know we don't call too much attention to it? Do we talk about it and then are we mm-hmm. you know lamp taking the risk of lampshading it a little too much? So. Uh, I hope that it was subtle enough and I was yeah. able to, you know, talk about the fabric and the tapestry of Babylon 5 and the galaxy mm-hmm. um, to to not raise any red flags for anybody, but still keep the Marcab in the forefront of folks' minds, because then I think yeah. it will it will hit so much harder when we get to Confessions and Limitations. Expertly exactly. done. Oh, thanks. Yeah. All right. Well, any other uh, any other spoilery section stuff to cover? I think I think, I think we're I'm done. Yeah, same here. I think that this is uh, it's it, it it's a good linking piece uh, to uh, keep all the plot threads moving. Yeah, I, I I'll keep it. I'm not going to space it. Yeah, same here. <laughs> same here. But all next right. time, <laughs> <laughs> next time will be very different. Another momentous episode. Something to look forward yep. to. And Shannon will be Indeed. taking us through that one. So until next time, again, I've. Please come and uh, come and take part in the comment threads on b5audioguide.com. It's exciting stuff over there. Um, and of course, Twitter and Tumblr at b5audioguide. And until next time, we are heading out. So this is Erica in Edmonton. Shannon in Durham. And Chip in Durham. And you've been listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5.